Chapter Two B, of Bacon by R. W. Church. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bacon by R. W. Church, Chapter Two B. These same gradations of yours, so Bacon represents himself expostulating with the Queen on her caprices, are fitter to corrupt than to correct any mind of greatness. They made Essex desperate. He became frightened for his life, and he had reason to be so, though not in the way which he feared. At length came the stupid and ridiculous outbreak of the 8th of February, 1600-1601 a plot to seize the palace and raise the city against the ministers, by the help of a few gentlemen armed only with their rapiers. As Bacon himself told the Queen, if some base and cruel-minded persons had entered into such an action, it might have caused much blow and combustion, but it appeared well that they were such as knew not how to play the malefactors. But it was sufficient to bring Essex within the doom of treason. Essex knew well what the stake was. He lost it, and deserved to lose it, little as his enemies deserved to win it. For they, too, were doing what would have cost them their heads if Elizabeth had known it, corresponding, as Essex was accused of doing, with Scotland about the succession, and possibly with Spain. But they were playing cautiously and craftily, he with bungling passion. He had been so long accustomed to power and place that he could not endure that rivals should keep him out of it. They were content to have their own way, while affecting to be the humblest of servants. He would be nothing less than a mayor of the palace. He was guilty of a great public crime, as every man is who appeals to arms for anything short of the most sacred cause. He was bringing into England, which had settled down into peaceable ways, an imitation of the violent methods of France and the Guises. But the crime as well as the penalty belonged to the age and crimes legally said to be against the state mean morally very different things, according to the state of society and opinion. It is an unfairness verging on the ridiculous, when the ground is elaborately laid for keeping up the impression that Essex was preparing a real treason against the Queen like that of Norfolk. It was a treason of the same sort and order as that for which Northumberland sent Somerset to the block, the treason of being an unsuccessful rival. Meanwhile Bacon had been getting gradually into the unofficial employ of the government. He had become one of the learned counsel, lawyers with subordinate and intermittent work, used when wanted, but without patent or salary, and not ranking with the regular law officers. The government had found him useful in affairs of the revenue, in framing interrogatories for prisoners in the tower, in drawing up reports of plots against the Queen. He did not in this way earn enough to support himself but he had thus come to have some degree of access to the Queen, which he represents as being familiar and confidential, though he still perceived, as he says himself, that she did not like him. At the first news of Essex's return to England, Bacon greeted him. My lord, conceiving that your lordship came now up in the person of a good servant to see your sovereign mistress, which kind of compliments are many times instar magnorum meritorum, and therefore it would be hard for me to find you, I have committed to this poor paper the humble salutations of him that is more yours than any man's, and more yours than any man. To these salutations I add a due and joyful gratulation, 
confessing that your lordship, in your last conference with me before your journey, spake not in vain, God making it good, that you trusted we should say, quis putasset, which as it is found true in a happy sense, so I wish you do not find another quis putasset in the manner of taking this so great a service. But I hope it is, as he said, nebecula est cito transibit, and that your lordship's wisdom and obsequious circumspection and patience will turn all to the best. So referring all to some time that I may attend you, I commit you to God's best preservation. But when Essex's conduct in Ireland had to be dealt with, Bacon's services were called for, and from this time his relations towards Essex were altered. Every one, no one better than the Queen herself, knew all that he owed to Essex. It is strangely illustrative of the time that, especially as Bacon held so subordinate a position, he should have been required and should have been trusted to act against his only and most generous benefactor. It is strange, too, that however great his loyalty to the Queen, however much and sincerely he might condemn his friend's conduct, he should think it possible to accept the task. He says that he made some remonstrance, and he says, no doubt truly, that during the first stage of the business he used the ambiguous position in which he was placed to soften Essex's inevitable punishment, and to bring about a reconciliation between him and the Queen. But he was required, as the Queen's lawyer, to set forth in public Essex's offences, and he admits that he did so not over-tenderly. Yet all this, even if we have misgivings about it, is intelligible. If he had declined, he could not, perhaps, have done the service which he assures us that he tried to do for Essex, and it is certain that he would have had to reckon with the terrible lady who in her old age still ruled England from the throne of Henry the Eighth, and who had certainly no great love for Bacon himself. She had already shown him, in a much smaller matter, what was the forfeit to be paid for any resistance to her will. All the hopes of his life must perish. All the grudging and suspicious favours which he had won with such unremitting toil and patient waiting would be sacrificed, and he would henceforth live under the wrath of those who never forgave. And whatever he did for himself, he believed that he was serving Essex. His scheming imagination and his indefatigable pen were at work. He tried strange indirect methods. He invented a correspondence between his brother and Essex, which was to fall into the Queen's hands in order to soften her wrath and show her Essex's most secret feelings. When the Queen proposed to dine with him at his lodge in Twickenham Park, though I profess not to be a poet, he prepared a sonnet tending and alluding to draw on Her Majesty's reconcilement to my lord. It was an awkward thing for one who had been so intimate with Essex, to be so deep in the counsels of those who hated him. He complains that many people thought him ungrateful and disloyal to his friend, and that stories circulated to his disadvantage, as if he were poisoning the Queen's ear against Essex. But he might argue fairly enough that willful and wrong-headed as Essex had been, it was the best that he could now do for him. And as long as it was only a question of Essex's disgrace and enforced absence from court, Bacon could not be bound to give up the prospects of his life. Indeed, his public duty as a subordinate servant of government, on account of his friend's inexcusable and dangerous follies. Essex did not see it so, and in the subjoined correspondence had the advantage. But Bacon's position, though a higher one might be imagined, 
where men had been such friends as these two men had been, is quite a defensible one. My lord, no man can better expound my doings than your lordship, which maketh me need to say the less. Only I humbly pray you to believe that I aspire to the conscience and commendation first of Bonus Civis, which with us is a good and true servant to the queen, and next of Bonus Vir, that is an honest man. I desire your lordship also to think that though I confess I love some things much better than I love your lordship, as the queen's service, her quiet and contentment, her honour, her favour, the good of my country, and the like, yet I love few persons better than yourself, both for gratitude's sake and for your own virtues, which cannot hurt but by accident or abuse, of which my good affection I was ever ready and am ready to yield testimony by any good offices but with such reservations as yourself cannot but allow. For as I was ever sorry that your lordship should fly with waxen wings, doubting Icarus's fortune, so for the growing up of your own feathers, specially ostriches, or any other save of a bird of prey, no man shall be more glad. And this is the axle-tree whereupon I have turned and shall turn, which to signify to you, though I think you are of yourself persuaded as much, is the cause of my writing. And so I commend your lordship to God's goodness, from Gray's Inn, this twentieth day of July, 1600. Your lordship's most humbly, Francis Bacon. To this letter Essex returned an answer of dignified reserve, such as Bacon might himself have dictated. Mr. Bacon, I can neither expound nor censure your late actions, being ignorant of all of them save one, and having directed my sight inward only to examine myself. You do pray me to believe that you only aspire to the conscience and commendation of Bonus Civis and Bonus Vir. And I do faithfully assure you that while this is your ambition, though your course be active and mine contemplative, yet we shall both convenire in codem tertio, and convenire inter nasipsos. Your profession of affection and offer of good offices are welcome to me. For answer to them I will say but this, that you have believed I have been kind to you, and you may believe that I cannot be other, either upon humour or my own election. I am a stranger to all poetical conceits, or else I should say something of your poetical example. But this I must say, that I never flew with other wings than desire to merit and confidence in my sovereign's favour, and when one of these wings failed me, I would light nowhere but at my sovereign's feet though she suffered me to be bruised with my fall. And till her majesty, that knows I was never bird of prey, finds it to agree with her will and her service that my wings should be imped again, I have committed myself to the mire. No power but my gods and my sovereigns can alter this resolution of your retired friend, Essex. But after Essex's mad attempt in the city a new state of things arose. The inevitable result was a trial for high treason, a trial of which no one could doubt the purpose and end. The examination of accomplices revealed speeches, proposals, projects, not very intelligible to us in the still imperfectly understood game of intrigue that was going on among all parties at the end of Elizabeth's reign, but quite enough to place Essex at the mercy of the government and the offended queen. The new information, says Mr. Spedding, had been immediately communicated to Coke and Bacon. Coke, as Attorney-General, of course, conducted the prosecution. 
and the next prominent person on the side of the crown was not the solicitor or any other regular law officer but bacon though holding the very subordinate place of one of the learned counsel it does not appear that he thought it strange that he showed any pain or reluctance that he sought to be excused he took it as a matter of course the part assigned to bacon in the prosecution was as important as that of coke and he played it more skilfully and effectively trials in those days were confused affairs often passing into a mere wrangle between the judges lawyers and lookers-on and the prisoner at the bar it was so in this case coke is said to have blundered in his way of presenting the evidence and to have been led away from the point into an altercation with essex probably it really did not much matter but the trial was getting out of its course and inclining in favour of the prisoner till bacon mr spedding thinks out of his regular turn stepped forward and retrieved matters this is mr spedding's account of what bacon said and did by this time the argument had drifted so far away from the point that it must have been difficult for a listener to remember what it was that the prisoners were charged with or how much of the charge had been proved and coke who was all this time the sole speaker on behalf of the crown was still following each fresh topic that rose before him without the sign of an intention or the intimation of a wish to return to the main question and reform the broken ranks of his evidence luckily he seems to have been now at a loss what point to take next and the pause gave bacon an opportunity of rising it could hardly have been in pursuance of previous arrangements for though it was customary in those days to distribute the evidence into parts and to assign several parts to several counsel there had been no appearance as yet of any part being concluded it is probable that the course of the trial had upset previous arrangements and confused the parts at any rate so it was however it came to pass that when cecil and essex had at last finished their expostulation and parted with charitable prayers each that the other might be forgiven then says our reporter mr bacon entered into a speech much after this fashion in speaking of this late and horrible rebellion which hath been in the eyes and ears of all men i shall save myself much labour in opening and enforcing the points thereof insomuch as i speak not before a country jury of ignorant men but before a most honourable assembly of the greatest peers of the land whose wisdoms conceive far more than my tongue can utter yet with your gracious and honourable favours i will presume if not for information of your honours yet for the discharge of my duty to say thus much no man can be ignorant that knows matters of former ages and all history makes it plain that there was never any traitor heard of that durst directly attempt the seat of his liege prince but he always coloured his practices with some plausible pretence for god hath imprinted such a majesty in the face of a prince that no private man dare approach the person of his sovereign with a traitorous intent and therefore they run another side course oblique et à la terre some to reform corruptions of the state and religion some to reduce the ancient liberties and customs pretended to be lost and worn out some to remove those persons that being in high places make themselves subject to envy but all of them aim at the overthrow of the state and destruction of the present rulers and this likewise is the use of those that work mischief of another quality as cain that first murderer took up an excuse for his fact shaming to outface it with impudency 
Thus the Earl made his colour the severing of some great men and counsellors from Her Majesty's favour, and the fear he stood of in his pretended enemies, lest they should murder him in his house. Therefore he saith he was compelled to fly into the city for succour and assistance, not much unlike Pisistratus, of whom it was so anciently written how he gashed and wounded himself, and in that sort ran crying into Athens that his life was sought and like to have been taken away, thinking to have moved the people to have pitied him and taken his part by such counterfeited harm and danger. Whereas his aim and drift was to take the government of the city into his hands and alter the form thereof. With like pretenses of dangers and assaults, the Earl of Essex entered the city of London and passed through the bowels thereof blanching rumours that he should have been murdered, and that the state was sold. Whereas he had no such enemies, no such dangers, persuading themselves that if they could prevail, all would have done well. But now magna celera terminantur in Horison, for you, my lord, should know that though princes give their subjects cause of discontent, though they take away the honours they have heaped upon them, though they bring them to a lower estate than they raised them from, Yet ought they not to be so forgetful of their allegiance, that they should enter into any undutiful act, much less upon rebellion, as you, my lord, have done. All whatsoever you have or can say and answer hereof are but shadows, and therefore methinks it were best for you to confess, not to justify. Essex was provoked by Bacon's incredulous sneer about enemies and dangers. I call forth Mr. Bacon against Mr. Bacon and referred to the letters which Bacon had written in his name, and in which these dangerous enmities were taken for granted. Bacon, in answer, repeated what he said so often, that he had spent more time in vain in studying how to make the Earl a good servant to the Queen and State than he had done in anything else. Once more Coke got the proceedings into a tangle, and once more Bacon came forward to repair the miscarriage of his leader. I have never yet seen in any case such favour shown to any prisoner, so many digressions, such delivering of evidence by fractions, and so silly a defence of such great and notorious treasons. May it please your grace, you have seen how weakly he hath shadowed his purpose, and how slenderly he hath answered the objections against him. But, my lord, I doubt the variety of matters, and the many digressions may minister occasion of forgetfulness and may have severed the judgments of the lords. And therefore, I hold it necessary briefly to recite the judge's opinions. That being done, he proceeded to this effect. Now put the case that the Earl of Essex's intents were, as he would have it believed, to go only as a suppliant to Her Majesty. Shall their petitions be presented by armed petitioners? This must needs bring a loss of property to the Prince. Neither is it any point of law, as my lord of Southampton would have it believed, that condemns them of treason. To take secret counsel, to execute it, to run together in numbers armed with weapons, what can be the excuse? Warned by the Lord Keeper, by a herald, and yet persist. Will any simple man take this to be less than treason? The Earl of Essex answered that if he had purposed anything against others than those his private enemies, he would not have stirred with so slender a company, whereunto Mr. Bacon answered, It was not the company you carried with you, but the assistance you hoped for in the city which you trusted unto. The Duke of Guise, 
thrust himself into the streets of Paris on the day of the barricades in his doublet and hose, attended only with eight gentlemen, and found that help in the city which, thanks be to God, you failed of here. And what followed? The king was forced to put himself into a pilgrim's weeds, and in that disguise to steal away to scape their fury. Even such was my lord's confidence, too, and his pretense the same, and all hail and a kiss to the city. But the end was treason, as hath been sufficiently proved. But when he had once delivered and engaged himself so far into that which the shallowness of his conceit could not accomplish as he expected, the queen for her defence taking arms against him, he was glad to yield himself, and thinking to colour his practices, turned his pretexts, and alleged the occasion thereof to proceed from a private quarrel. This, adds the reporter, the earl answered little, nor was anything said afterwards by either of the prisoners, either in the thrust and parry dialogue with Coke that followed, or when they spoke at large to the question why judgment should not be pronounced, which at all altered the complexion of the case. They were both found guilty, and a sentence passed in the usual form. Bacon's legal position was so subordinate a place that there must have been a special reason for his employment. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that, on the part of the government, Bacon was thus used for the very reason that he had been the friend of Essex. He was not commonly called upon in such prosecutions. He was not employed by Cecil in the Winchester trials of Raleigh, Gray, and Cobham, three years afterwards, nor in those connected with the gunpowder plot. He was called upon now because no one could so much damage Essex and this last proof of his ready service was required by those whose favour, since Essex had gone hopelessly wrong, he had been diligently seeking. And Bacon acquiesced in the demand, apparently without surprise. No record remains to show that he felt any difficulty in playing his part. He had persuaded himself that his public duty, his duty as a good citizen to the Queen and the Commonwealth, demanded of him that he should obey the call to do his best to bring a traitor to punishment. Public duty has claims on a man as well as friendship, and in many conceivable cases claims paramount to those of friendship. And yet friendship too has claims, at least on a man's memory. Essex had been a dear friend, if words could mean anything. He had done more than any man had done for Bacon, generously and nobly, and Bacon had acknowledged it in the amplest terms. Only a year before he had written, I am as much yours as any man's, and as much yours as any man. It is not, and it was not, a question of Essex's guilt. It may be a question whether the whole matter was not exaggerated as to its purpose, as it certainly was to its real danger and mischief. We at least know that his rivals dabbled in intrigue and foolish speeches as well as he, that little more than two years afterwards Raleigh and Gray and Cobham were condemned for treason in much the same fashion as he was, that Cecil to the end of his days, with whatever purpose, was a pensioner of Spain. The question was not whether Essex was guilty. The question for Bacon was whether it was becoming in him, having been what he had been to Essex, to take a leading part in the proceedings which were to end in his ruin and death. He was not a judge. He was not a regular law officer like Coke. His only employment had been casual and occasional. He might most naturally, on the score of his old friendship, have asked to be excused. Condemning as he did his friend's guilt and folly, he might have refused to take part in a cause of blood, in which his best friend must perish. He might honestly have given up Essex as incorrigible, and, 
have retired to stand apart in sorrow and silence while the inevitable tragedy was played out. The only answer to this is, that to have declined would have incurred the Queen's displeasure. He would have forfeited any chance of advancement, nay, closely connected as he had been with Essex, he might have been involved in his friend's ruin. But inferior men have marred their fortunes by standing by their friends in not undeserved trouble, and no one knew better than Bacon what was worthy and noble in human action. The choice lay before him. He seems hardly to have gone through any struggle. He persuaded himself that he could not help himself under the constraint of his duty to the Queen, and he did his best to get Essex condemned. And this was not all. The death of Essex was a shock to the popularity of Elizabeth greater than anything that had happened in her long reign. Bacon's name also had come into men's mouths as that of a time-server, who played fast and loose with Essex and his enemies, and who, when he had got what he could from Essex, turned to see what he could get from those who put him to death. A justification of the whole affair was felt to be necessary, and Bacon was fixed upon the distinction and the dishonour of doing it. No one could tell the story so well, and it was felt that he would not shrink from it, nor did he. In cold blood he sat down to blacken Essex, using his intimate personal knowledge of the past to strengthen his statements against a friend who was in his grave, and for whom none could answer but Bacon himself. It is a well-compacted and forcible account of Essex's misdoings, on which of course the colour of deliberate and dangerous treason was placed. Much of it, no doubt, was true. But even of the facts, and much more of the colour, there was no check to be had. And it is certain that it was an object to the government to make out the worst. It is characteristic that Bacon records that he did not lose sight of the claims of courtesy, and studiously spoke of my Lord of Essex in the draft submitted for correction to the Queen. But she was more unceremonious, and insisted that the rebel should be spoken of simply as Essex. After a business of this kind, fines and forfeitures flowed in abundantly, and were usually bestowed on deserving servants or favoured suitors by way of reward, and Bacon came in for his share. Out of one of the fines he received twelve hundred pounds. "'The Queen hath done something for me,' he writes to a friendly creditor, though not in the proportion I had hoped. And he afterwards asked for something more. It was rather under the value of Essex's gift to him in 1594 but she still refused him all promotion. He was without an official place in the Queen's service, and he never was allowed to have it. It is clear that the declaration of the treason of the Earl of Essex, if it justified the government, did not remove the odium which had fallen on Bacon. Mr. Spedding says that he can find no signs of it. The proof of it is found in the apology, which Bacon found it expedient to write after Elizabeth's death and early in James's reign. He found that the recollection of the way in which he had dealt with his friend hung heavy upon him. Men hesitated to trust him in spite of his now recognized ability. Accordingly he drew up an apology, which he addressed to Lord Mountjoy, the friend, in reality half the accomplice, of Essex, in his wild, ill-defined plan for putting pressure on Elizabeth. It is a clear, able, of course, ex parte statement of the doings of the three chief actors, two of whom could no longer answer for themselves, or correct and contradict the third. It represents the Queen as implacable and cruel, Essex as incorrigibly and outrageously willful, proud, and undutiful, 
Bacon himself as using every effort and device to appease the Queen's anger and suspiciousness, and to bring Essex to a wiser and humbler mind. The picture is indeed a vivid one, and full of dramatic force, of an unrelenting and merciless mistress kept on breaking and bowing down to the dust, and the haughty spirit of a once-loved but rebellious favourite, whom, though he is deeply offended, she yet wishes to bring once more under her yoke, and of the calm, keen-witted looker-on, watching the dangerous game, not without personal interest, but with undisturbed presence of mind, and doing his best to avert an irreparable and fatal breach. How far he honestly did his best for his misguided friend we can only know from his own report. But there is no reason to think that he did Essex ill-service, though he notices in passing an allegation that the Queen in one of her angry fits had charged him with this. But his interest clearly was to make up the quarrel between the Queen and Essex. Bacon would have been a greater man with both of them if he had been able to do so. He had been too deeply in Essex's intimacy to make his new position of mediator, with a strong bias on the Queen's side, quite safe and easy for a man of honourable mind. But a cool judging and prudent man may well have acted as he represents himself acting, without forgetting what he owed to his friend. Till the last great moment of trial there is a good deal to be said for Bacon, a man keenly alive to Essex's faults, with a strong sense of what he owed to the Queen and the State and with his own reasonable chances of rising greatly prejudiced by Essex's folly. But at length came the crisis which showed the man, and threw light on all that had passed before, when he was picked out, out of his regular place, to be charged with the task of bringing home the capital charge against Essex. He does not say he hesitated. He does not say that he asked to be excused the terrible office. He did not flinch as the minister of vengeance for those who required that Essex should die. He did his work, we are told, by his admiring biographer, better than Coke, and repaired the blunders of the prosecution. He passes over very shortly this part of the business. It was laid upon me with the rest of my fellows. Yet it is the knot and key of the whole, as far as his own character is concerned. Bacon had his public duty. His public duty may have compelled him to stand apart from Essex. But it was his interest. It was no part of his public duty which required him to accept the task of accuser of his friend, and in his friend's direst need calmly to drive home a well-directed stroke that should extinguish chances and hopes and make his ruin certain. No one who reads his anxious letters about preferment and the Queen's favour, about his disappointed hopes, about his straitened means and distress for money, about his difficulties with his creditors—he was twice arrested for debt can doubt that the question was between his own prospects and his friend, and that to his own interest he sacrificed his friend and his own honour. End of chapter 2b Recording by Bill Borst